everyone. Welcome to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. It's been a week and we are here this week with uh, Sarah. Hey guys. Darren. Hey everybody. Kevin. Hey there. And this is Stacy. And this week we are going to discuss gender. And actually this is our new topic for the month. So tonight we're just going to discuss kind of gender as a is a whole and then each week this month we'll be breaking it down into a couple different subtopics so we uh hope that you enjoy this podcast uh be sure to interact with us on facebook or instagram or twitter whatever you have and uh hit us up with any questions you might have and let's get on with our show for tonight so what does gender encompass what are our thoughts anyone I'll uh, I'll jump in and and maybe give some terms that that help, because um, many of us, I know myself included, grew up with gender and sex being just two interchangeable words, yep. um, especially on forms and so forth. Uh, sex um, often refers to biological sex, which even that needs some nuancing. Um, but this is sex is typically the physical traits. Um, that are associated with um, with maleness or femaleness. Um, and this is everything from hormones to uh, genitals uh, to, you know, what happens in puberty. One of the challenges with sex versus gender is that we tend to uh, associate, you know, we, we tend to say, oh, if you have these sexual organs, then you are a man. Or if you don't have these sexual organs, then you are a woman. Um, and the challenge with that uh, can really spill over into all kinds of places, including things like disability. It's like, well, if you're not born with certain things, can you be a man or a woman? If that's our definition. So sex is really about more physical traits and describing things that we typically assign to a gender. Um, but but that's separate from gender. Gender would be how you see yourself and how others see you as male, female, or otherwise. Um, so gender is more about, about our social customs, about our, our ways that we've been socialized. Um, so when it comes to gender for yourself, it's when you're thinking, do you think I'm a man, I'm a woman, or do you think I'm neither or both? Um, when it comes to how you see people, gender is I look at you see you wearing a skirt see that you have breasts I'm going to maybe look at you and presume that you're a woman um but what we also know about biology is that sometimes things don't fall neatly into two categories and so we do have people who are born intersex which is where their sex traits like hormones or um, genitals or anything like that are ambiguous. They're somewhere in between um, for a number of reasons. And then we have people who, for example, are transgender, people who were designated a certain gender at birth. And as they grew into themselves, they realized that that wasn't a, an accurate description of who they see themselves as being. Um, we'll get into a later episode. We'll talk more about those specifics and nuances. But for today, um, it's really about just our own experiences and how we identify and all that other stuff. So hopefully that sets a, a good foundation um, for what we mean when we say gender. Definitely. And I, um, I, I, I love that, that breakdown 
because you know it's not something that you know growing up I was exposed to or, or really heard like I, I grew up very I guess what you could call binary like it was male and it was female and you know what you were born how however you were born is the the gender identity that that you were um so you know I was I was a, a girl a female um wore dresses you know typical girl things um and that's kind of what shaped me um until I realized that there was a whole different world I think as I started to get older, um, I would say probably high school and into college, realizing that it wasn't as simple as just male, female. For you, were there any uh, were there any things that were expected of you as a girl that you either really leaned into or that you maybe felt uncomfortable about? Um, I think the idea that I always needed to be helped, that I you know, needed doors open for me and that I needed, uh, first, I, I grew up without, um, you know, the the male influences in my life were inconsistent. And so um, I, you know, grew up very independent and doing for myself and learning for myself, raised by a single mother. And so hearing these things for me, you know, that, you know, I needed someone to help me with things and, and that I, you know, um, couldn't shouldn't be out late although there are some unfortunate realities of the fact that <laughs> you know being out late as a woman um you do you do have concerns in that regard but just all the different i think stereotypes in terms of like women being the weaker sex like i was just like what are you talking about like i'm strong like i can do all this by myself like um, you know, being in college and just roaming the streets of Philadelphia on my own at all hours, you know, for coming from work, coming from school and just feeling like, you know, I don't need anyone to protect me. I don't need anyone to um, save me. And I think that that mindset I had was also taken negatively that I was, you know, too independent or, you know, had this attitude or this presence about me. So it, it was, I think it was, it was interesting in how I attached to my identity because who I am now is still embracing just being like, you know, strong female, very independent, um, looking for partnership, not looking to submit. Don't ask me anything about submission because I'm not having it. <laughs> so, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can definitely relate to that, Sarah. Like I grew up where it was definitely you're a boy or girl and there's no like in between but I grew up on a farm <laughs> and so I definitely became tomboy and I played in the dirt and you know did all the things that my boy neighbor did and you know right alongside him and always getting skinned up and black guys and that sort of thing and and I did not like wearing dresses at all. And so I definitely like bucked the norms on that end. And I guess I think I went through like, especially my later teens and maybe early college age years of people like questioning maybe like, 
does she like girls? Just because of that aspect of me of being more tomboyish, you know, Mm -hmm. because I wasn't the gender stereotypical, like girly, girly, you know, type. I didn't dress in dresses and I didn't like have pink everywhere. And, and I actually was very opposed to pink. I was more of the emo, like black and gray wearing (laughs) type of person. So I, in that aspect, you know, wasn't girly, girly. And I did not like it when guys would try and open the door for me on dates or whenever I was very much like, excuse me, I can do that myself. So very independent as well. So yeah, I think now I, now being in my forties, I see that, you know, gender isn't like black and white as in like, there's no like one or the other. It's like, is much bigger than just one or the other. For for you, you mentioned growing up and and having this uh, tomboyish kind of life. Did you feel pressure from your family to be more girly? Did you feel like it was just accepted oh, as you were? <laughs> I definitely felt the pressure because I was often reminded that I was not ladylike in many circumstances, especially at church. So, (laughs) you know, we were forced to wear dresses and obviously I I did not know how to sit like a lady very well. And (laughs) nor did I know how to play like a lady or be quiet like a lady and, you know, submit all the time. So I definitely, yeah, there was a lot of pressure to do the right thing. And I got in trouble a lot because I didn't do the right thing. So, yeah. That's, that's interesting. That kind of takes me back to the first church. I remember, I really remember growing up uh, right when we moved to the United States, we had two different services, one at 9 a.m. And then that one went till about 10. Then we had a little bit of a break and then the, Second service started at 1030. And the thing about this church was that, and I think they're still this way, was that you went to both services. You didn't choose one or the other. They were two different services. They had two different purposes. So at the 9 a.m. service, you went and you sang hymns and it was very male led, like only men could stand up and uh, uh, ask for the church to sing a hymn. So you would stand up with your hymnal and go church i would ask that we turn to hymn number 143 uh, and then you know holy 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 whatever it was and then everybody else would stand up and sing or if a man again man had a word from god air quotes there um they could stand up and and give said word and if somebody sometimes it would turn into like a practically a, a Greek debate where one person would say something and then somebody would disagree. And so they would stand up and go, well, God told me and, you know, do this thing. But I say all that to say that first off, again, only men were, uh, were allowed to say anything and any women that were, what was it? I think that were bapt adult and baptized women had to wear a veil, had to wear some sort of covering over their mm. head. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they could, they, they basically could be as small as little doilies, you know, little six, seven, eight inches in diameter. 
Uh, but there were also some some ladies like my grandmother who had like a full come down to their shoulder and a very intricate sort of thing. And that was for me the first time that at seven, eight years old, I looked around and said, something's not right here. Why do we give different requirements for men and women? And the answers were never satisfying to me as, again, a seven, eight-year-old boy where they said, well, there's just gender norms is essentially what they were saying. There's some things that men can do and some things that women can do. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure we can all do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my experience in the church growing up in the independent fundamentalist Baptist church um, women could play the piano and the organ. We could teach Sunday school. And that was like it, I think. You could be a deaconess, which was basically you had to be the wife of a deacon. Um, but that was basically it. Oh, and you could pray, but not like lead the prayer. You know what I mean? Could so, you pray up on the pulpit, like at the main roster? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you could sing though a special song though, like for the offertory or something like that. You were allowed to do that. So up for there special or music. on the floor? Um, no, we could actually do it up behind the pulpit. Interesting. So yes. only singing behind the pulpit, but not praying. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Women weren't allowed to pray. I mean, because that's leading, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, none of that going on. But it was interesting, though, because as I was older um, in that same church, like right around the year I was a senior in high school, the pastor's wife actually took over the music aspect of church because she was musical herself. And she started leading the songs and we started singing. We bought these new books to sing out of that had choruses in them. New hymnals? No, they weren't hymnals. No, 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 no. We still had the hymnals. Yeah, we'd never get rid of those things. supplement. Yes, this is in addition to, um, they were just little booklets, I think. And uh, yes, they had these choruses in them and she would teach us these choruses um and lead them and there was a lot of backlash from that when like because the pastor essentially her husband was the one allowing it so it was not welcomed by a lot of people and what was interesting about it guess who didn't like it the women yes the other women primarily the the deaconesses so yeah, that it was it was a controversy for quite a while. Yeah, oh. interesting how women like we hold to some of these norms and defend right? some of norms more so than than men. I think sometimes, um, and it, it's because I, I always now more so than ever just question like where did this come from? Why? who, you know, who taught us that we had to be a certain way or that we had to think this or that we had to do this, you know, especially when it comes to the church. I mean, I, my experience is different in that my church, I grew up in a Methodist church and it wasn't as, um, we didn't have these different rules. At least I didn't realize, I mean, there were always male pastors, so I didn't grow up seeing a female pastor. Um, 
but I didn't recognize, I think, until getting into ministry myself that so many women weren't allowed into ministry and that that was still something today. Like, I think in my mind, I was like, clearly that that's still not a thing in 2020, 2021. That can't possibly be a thing. So naive Mm -hmm. of me getting into ministry like a year ago and like, and, and so I got, I got hired by a female pastor. And so that was one of the things that she warned me was that, you know, her struggles of being a female pastor. And I was floored. I was like, I can't believe in this day and age that this is still a thing or that women are still in the church held to certain things or can't do certain things or expected to, you know, um, I've had friends that have been a part of churches where women only have to wear dresses and, and just different, Mm -hmm. different norms and things that, um, are held within the church when it comes to, you know, traditional gender. Yeah. It's, it is something, um, that, that happens with groups who are in the one down position when it's, when it's so encultured, we become the perpetuators, we internalize it and then we enforce it. And sometimes we enforce it harder Mm. than the people who created it and handed it to us. Mm -hmm. We've seen it with uh, black police officers are sometimes more brutal than white police officers Mm. when dealing with other black people. Mm -hmm. One, because they'll get harsher punishments from from the from their superiors if they don't show this extra effort but two because it's it's that thing where you've always internalized that oh they're going to be watching me so if i don't really show out then i'm not going to do it right so for women i i can i can imagine the ways that you know if if you're not showing up as a good obedient woman then you're going to also catch this oh so you're being rebellious and oh you're not believing the bible or whatever kinds of dogma gets put out there as this is what women should be doing because the main enforcers you know like in in black black churches um there was this uh, i mean it's not exclusive to black churches but i remember the first time i went to a church and saw a sign on the on the entrance to the sanctuary that said women cannot come in wearing pants and it was just like how how do you tell somebody that before they meet anyone, before they experience anything in the church that they can't even walk in the door right. wearing pants? And why yeah. is that that important? I didn't, I did not understand. I knew it was a, a custom of different religious groups. I just had never seen it up close or that kind of inhumanely. It was just, just a sign. And you, and you better, you better read it and recognize. Otherwise somebody's going to run uh, you know, one of the mothers of the church would come and pull you to the side and be all sweet and a hey, baby. I know you didn't know you come to church today, but let me let me take you to this closet and we're going to get you get you. To, you know, it, it comes off in this very, oh, I'm being yes. cared for, right. but you're actually being subjugated. Mm-hmm. And I th- that's part of the just overall. I think that's part of the um, mindset mentality that keeps us all. I'm I'm going to use just general terms here keeps all of us keeping each other down mm. is we th- it's caring for each other. We think that I'm caring for your eternal right. soul. I tell you that you Sarah as a woman you can't be a pastor because it's been ingrained in mm. me whether me Kevin or or Sam another woman it's been ingrained in me that that's how it is, that God cares so much about women being pastors or anybody that's not a man being a pastor, that it's going to have some sort of effect on on your eternal soul or, or the people that you 
hopefully eventually lead to Christ or as a leader in general, it's going to have an effect on your company's profits. It's going to have an effect on on the clients that you reach. It's going to have an effect on the audiences that you see. If I, as a man, don't tell you that you're in the wrong. Um, and, and that's just part of that. I'm going to say it, that colonizer mentality that uh that oppressive patriarchy mentality and i swear if 18 year old me could hear me talk right now i would slap myself it would be a heretic uh, I, right and that's the thing is we have this ingrained in us that it's it's not just a temporary thing it's an eternal thing it's going to affect all the company's profits and all the giving in the church when we can look all around us and see that there are very successful churches being led by not men. Yeah. They're very successful led by not men. And I say that very purposefully. Um, and just real quick before I pass off the baton, it reminds me of uh, at my last church, there was a, a big part of my ministry, uh, really anywhere, but especially at this church, was to reach students who weren't churched, reach students who who didn't know who Christ was. And so uh, it's a very. It was a very small town, very very high drug use, very high crime rate, um, and so a lot of the students that we attracted to the youth group were students from broken homes. Honestly, and I remember one Sunday, there were there were three girls who showed up, and one of them it was the first time they had come to church on a Sunday morning, but one of them specifically was her first time ever walking into a church on a Sunday morning. And she had been coming to our youth group for about a month or two. And finally, she said, you know what? I want to check it out. I want to see what's going on. And there's lunch after church this Sunday. So I'm going to go and grab a free lunch. And she walked in. And just suffice it to say, she wasn't dressed like a, quote, good Christian girl would be dressed. Um, and I had one of the uh, leading members of the church. Uh, this woman is on the board of directors, so to speak, for the church. And she grabbed me and pulled me aside and said, Kevin, you need to say something to this girl. And I said, what are you talking about? And she says, well, she's not dressed right. And I said, how dare you? You want me to go and, and, and scold this girl who has never been into church, who has never walked into a church, who has only heard the message of Christ through our youth group who decided to give church Sunday morning a try. And you're telling me to go to her on her very first time here and say, hey, God cares more about what you're wearing than what's in your heart. That part. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, you need to check yourself. You need to, to correct the way that you think. Um, and unfortunately, this woman ended up being one of the people who helped to who encouraged that pastor to push me out of the church. But, and I think that was part of it. I think that's part of the mentality where we need to change our way of thinking from God cares what you look like on the outside to no, God doesn't care what you look like on the outside. God doesn't care what you wear or, or what's between your legs or not between your legs as the case may be. God cares what you're doing, what your heart looks like, whether you're part of a church whether you're a pastor, whether you've decided to to denounce Christianity at all completely, God cares more about what's in your heart and what you're doing than where you're going and what you're wearing and where you're preaching from. 
the whole and, go ahead i was just gonna say the whole like clothing conversation in the church or the whole modesty and like mm-hmm. you come up um in youth groups when, when the summertime hits and you pastors well how do you address you know, the conversation of bathing suits and it's always, you know, modesty a lot of times is always directed at the females Mm -hmm. because we're going to wear something that, you know, was going to cause, you know, men to sin apparently, like, like, like we have no sex drive. Apparently, apparently we don't have a sex drive and, you know, (laughs) but Uh, we're not attracted to men's butts at all. Right. So <laughs> the, the, like, the man can literally run around in just just some shorts and shirts off and, and sweating in the sun. And clearly the only ones who are going to have a problem are the girls. Apparently. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <That distracted>. <laughs> <laughs> Darren's but, imagination just went off there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always it's just always it's always an interesting yep interesting conversation that I just I'm just like why are we so concerned about clothing and just Mm -hmm. this idea this I I think I think modesty is just a construct like right of of like what is modesty and who 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 came up with modesty who is the gatekeeper of modesty man (laughs) yeah straight man um but that you know like there's a there's there's so many pieces I want to dig into in this (laughs) um but that modesty conversation so breaks down when you're not heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many rules. You know, we talk about things like the Billy Graham rule where evangelical preachers decided that they would never be alone with a person of a different gender um, for the sake of, you know, abstaining from the appearance of evil or for the sake of um, making sure that you don't cause someone else to sin. And I always objected quietly, usually to myself, but eventually I became more vocal about it. It was like, how am I as a man who, and this was even when I just identified as same-sex attracted and struggling with same-sex attractions, how am I to live out authentically to live out the Billy Graham rule? Because yes, had women been attracted to me and and many women decided that I was, that that God called me to be their husband? Sure. Um, Of course. Yes, it is a humble brag. Um, But uh, had that happened? Yes. Uh, Did it it ever cause an occasion for sin? Um, not involving me. I don't, I don't know what happened when I was not around, but not involving me. (laughs) But if I were, if I were to, to adhere to this rule, then the campus ministry that, that I was a co-leader of with lots of, of women couldn't get to church because I was the means for many of them getting to church. And there were oftentimes where that, that would probably mean I'd be alone with one of them. But again, in this, in this search for authenticity, Let's talk about what I'm actually tempted to, because I was struggling against the sin of homosexuality and in the terms that I was using at the time. And so that meant that for me to live out the Billy Graham rule for me would mean that I could drive women, but I couldn't be alone with men. But how do you explain that to men without also making it because of the way we treat gender? If you say say to a man, I can't be around you because I, you know, don't want to cause cause anyone to sin they either think you're accusing them of being gay or they think that you're attracted to them and right. not 
And so now it leaves us with this quandary of, okay, so I can't be along with women and I can't be along with men. Mm-hmm. Should I even like go to men's Bible study? Like, like what does this mean? And when you're attracted to both sex, what happens? Then you, you just, we, you the just bisexual, everybody's mad at the bisexuals anyway. People right? want the bisexuals to fit into whatever box they've pre-created for them. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was one of those things where it's just like, this does not make sense. And it was so normal. It was so assumed to be pious and for the good of all Mm -hmm. that people just kind of rolled with it and would repeat it. I know I certainly repeated it on occasion. And so I was like, recently this doesn't work. Like 2021, I have heard the Billy Graham rule being used as an actual, this is what I follow thing this year, the year of our Lord, 2021. I don't know if God wants to claim this year, but... (laughs) Still, it's 2020 plus one. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a thing. And there's so many ways that I just feel like this does not add up. Because the other thing that I was thinking of was um, of the modesty rules, right? They're, they're always centered on women being some kind of automatic temptation for men. And that because men are weak or able to be tempted, somehow that becomes the responsibility of women to mm-hmm. control what they wear, how they act, where they where they appear. And men don't ever or rarely, because I did get called out on it once, and I'll tell that story in a minute, but men don't get the modesty demands for the most part. I mean, some places will say men can't wear short sleeve shirts, which is very specific, very, very, very cultural. But um, can't be showing those guns. (laughs) But for the most part, men just got to show up and and be themselves. And and women from very early ages, well, you can't sit that way, and you can't do this, Mm -hmm. and you can't wear that, and your shoulders are out, and your elbows are out, and your neck and your ankles are out, and oh, you're just gonna cause these men to just fall and stumble left and right. Right. But also, don't be sexy. Yeah. Poor Michelle Obama. Oh my God. Remember when Barack first, you know, at the um, inauguration and she came out and she was looking all like herself and everybody's like, oh my God, her arms. Her arms were out and considered immodest. Yeah. And inappropriate for a first lady. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow the following first lady did not seem to catch that memo. I'm not sure why. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm going to use a term that is popular in the culture that, that will sound bad at first, but I'll explain it. I don't want to slut shame um, Melania. Not be, and it's not to say that I'm saying she's slutty. It's to say, The ways that we talk about women who don't adhere yeah. to modesty there it is, is yep. you're either a virgin or you're a slut. Yeah. And there's no in-between. Yeah. And mm-hmm. some cultures have it down to that's the only things you can be. There is no happy balance. You either right. have to be like virginal and untouched and by you know extension, pure air quotes, or you're some horrible thing who is out there having all kinds of sex and that this idea of a woman being sexual means that she is somehow bad and lacks virtue and lacks control and is less worth 
she has less worth and is less right. worth. Yeah. And it's opposite. I'm going to point out it's opposite for men. Mm-hmm. If you're a guy and you're a virgin. That's a bad thing. What yeah. you can't you can't attract a woman enough. You can't you can't get it with that one the one girl who's a slut who everybody else has gotten with. Right. Um, like that. It's a bad thing to be a guy and not have had sex. Whereas, if you the the more sex you have as a man, the more women that you conquer as a dude. Is a good thing. All of yeah, sudden. your You're your value goes to up. be sexual. Yeah, right, right, and yeah. I think that conversation boils down, it comes back down to uh, the modesty thing. Where mm-hmm. I mean, how many times? Holy crap! Growing up, that I go to summer camp where girls had to wear a one-piece bathing suit, and it couldn't be like a monokini; it had to be like right. one piece, but with God, a t-shirt over top, t-shirt over it. Right, the which is dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? It's like, <laughs> well, and uh, at the exact same time that girls were walking back and forth in in a full sweatsuit to the pool, guys were walking around in surf shorts and no shirt and flip. Yeah. Like that's that's it. And there, there's this double standard here that churches, I think, first because we're the church leaders roundtable podcast. Churches have to first recognize that, hey, there's a double standard. Mm-hmm. We, not, we do not require men and women to meet the same standard. A man can come off uh, just fresh out of high school and be a good leader and be well-spoken. And we, we're going to say, hey, we would like you to be our next youth pastor, which I will admit happened to me at my church. And I'm grateful for it. But I also know that if I would have, if I were to identify as a woman, if I would have been born as and identified as a woman, the same would not have been said for me. And not just because it was a Southern Baptist church, but because I would have also needed to get an education and I needed to know how to read the Bible and I needed to know how to study the Bible and I needed to know how to how to lead others in studying the Bible. And even then, I could only be the youth ministry director while we looked for a youth pastor in order to lead the group. And I know this because I talk to to women all the time who are going through this. But yeah. churches don't want to recognize that there's a double standard. There is this double standard that we have for men and for women. And that's not even getting into... Uh, transgender or or non-binary or intersex or anything else that's not getting into the 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 lgbtq plus conversation this is just the binary and churches cannot come to terms with the fact that women are treated differently than men and that's wrong it should not Mm -hmm. be that way yeah yeah I I will never forget like my first experience when I moved into like the Pentecostal charismatic churches. And if you've ever been in one and you have experienced the falling out um, in a church, um, you know that there are modesty cloths. I love the little purple cloths. Suddenly appear on top of a woman. And her, the bottom half of her, or sometimes the upper half, depending on what's going on. Were they only on women, or did they do one for men, too? Only on women. 
Oh. Only on women, of course. And some, depending on what the woman was wearing, you might end up with two or an extra long one because God forbid her, she might be a little bit chesty or something. And then her, her skirt might be a little bit short or, you know, she might need two of them because, you know, while she's laying on the floor, some guy may be looking at her and lusting after her. But we're all supposed to be smitten in the spirit at this moment. <laughs> right? Was anybody, was any dude looking up her skirt? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. It was, yeah. uh, I just to reflect on that, I I only experienced, I, I was, yeah, I only had one church where that was, fought, be, being slain in the spirit was common and where I experienced the, the uh, claws. I mean, we called them prayer claws, but yeah, they were they were, they were for the purpose of modesty. Modesty. Mm-hmm. But it was it was never a question that anyone who fell would be covered. Like it was pretty much standard, and the only deviation from that was if there weren't enough claws, and then it was more so like as needed. Like if someone's midriff was exposed or something mm. like that. But even mm-hmm. then, it wasn't exclusively based on gender. Wow. Um, now, that being said. Progressive. Uh, right. You know, in, in, in very limited senses. Um, <laughs> and, and we had a lot of female leadership. And we certainly had people who, um, while they wouldn't tell you, couldn't come in church wearing certain things, they were probably going to take you out to buy church clothes after. Uh, you know, yeah. we're going to. We're gonna make sure you 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 have what you need for church, but um, that being said, there was this habit of if a if a woman who had a shapely body because I never saw this happen to a quote unquote skinny girl, but if a woman who had a shapely body was shouting, jumping, dancing, um, and uh, yeah, if she if if she had some jiggle to her wiggle, <laughs> then. They were either going to hold up the claws behind oh. her as she jumped. No. Or if it was really intense, they were going to come and wrap that cloth around her like an extra skirt while she was what? shouting. And no. without consent. <laughs> and there's a whole thing to be said wow. about the way bodies get treated. Yeah, it's now women. Body shape. Yes, right. When they're when they have more shape to it, you know, we have all mm-hmm. these modest words to say. You got you got a big butt and, and, and thighs, or you have big breasts. Right. But you know, from very early ages, um, especially for women of color, being shapely happens at ten years old, and yeah. all of a sudden, now you're some kind of temptation right. at ten. To who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have that conversation. About the fact that you've got creepy, like, um, very inappropriate men in your midst who would be tempted by a 10-year-old. Right. Right. But instead of us dealing with the fact that they're predators in our midst, and this, you know, this really does get us into rape culture, too. Instead of dealing with that, we start teaching girls that they are either fast was was the the language, language we used. Yep. Or that they were endangering themselves simply by the fact that their bodies grew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The conversations, I, I remember um, the conversations being had, like when, you know, we were talking about like 
going out and it's just, and I don't know, like for you guys, if, if this, the experience was similar, but you know, if you're going to a club and there's just conversations, you know, don't leave your drink out. Don't, you know, be careful. Like just all these different, like mm-hmm. things that, you know, older cousins or aunts are telling you to be safe you know, watching what you're wearing, making sure that you're not, you know, and it's all out of concern because there is there, you know, there's a reality. And I'm not saying that some of these yeah. things are there's just, it's just a reality. Right. You have to be safe as a woman. I think sometimes looking out more so than as a male, um, mm-hmm. but it's just these conversations around, you know, what you're wearing and how everything is kind of your responsibility to protect your safety when you're just trying to live your life. Like everything that you're trying to do to make sure you're looking behind. I mean, you know, I, I'm by myself. So, you know, it was me when I'm out with me and my kids, like thinking about like, am I checking where I'm going? Am I watching all these things? There's just so many different things that you're thinking about because it's somehow my responsibility. Not that like there's predators around and let's focus on (laughs) how we're going to protect, you know, people from predators, but you know, it's, it becomes my responsibility and it's a lot sometimes, you know, it's a lot of thinking of, do I, do I even bother going to the gas station at night? Right. Things that I think about, think twice about. Mm-hmm. And this, again, like you talk about how as women, you get socialized that this is what, this is how you avoid being harmed. This is how you avoid getting attacked. This is how you carry your keys at night. So that if somebody jumps on you or something like that, yeah. um, but uh you know, and, and again, as a content warning, I'm going to mention sexual assault. Um, I'm a rape survivor. And when that happened to me, there was zero framework for the idea mm-hmm. that a man could be raped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, at that point, had already been an advocate for women when it comes to sexual assault and rape, but I had zero framework for myself as a 17 year old. And statistically, uh, sexual assault and, and, and so forth is a, as common as like one in six guys. It's something like one in four or one in three women by some es- estimates, but it's between one in six and one in eight guys before the age 18 are sexually assaulted. Yeah. And we don't ha- we don't get any of the training. We don't get any of the of the coaching. We don't get any of the make sure you tell someone. Um, and it's been common for men to get laughed at, mm-hmm. or men to either you know like we have so many rappers right now who are talking about, oh yeah, my first sexual experience was when I was ten years old and this lady wanted me and blah 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 blah. Or I was twelve years old and my babysitter uh-huh. just saw me and was so turned on. And it's just like. Mm-mm. These the statutory rape is still rape. Yep. Right. Um, you know, assault, all these things. We have, I shouldn't say no, but we have very little framework as a society around what is happening when we do this ultra binary. Women need these trainings. Mm-hmm. Men get nothing. Right. And I think it just it it goes to show how I think like it's the the worst end of the outcome. Yeah. of what happens when we don't really think in ways that remember that people are people <laughs> and people need support. And it's not, 
there's nothing wrong with having quote unquote mixed company conversations. I'm not even sure where that phrase comes from. We'll Google it later. <laughs> but but yeah, like we really need to do more of having some open and honest conversations. That expand expand beyond like I feel like whenever we're talking about sexual assault, it tends to be a very um tense subject between men and women instead of just being the, the reality of it and being real and, and hearing from the reality of the stories that yes, men, you know, men are right. That is a, that is a real thing and we need to find more support for it. But I find that the conversations tend to be very tense on, on that. It, it is ignored completely that, you know, it's just not happening in men and then women are lying. Right. So it's like, uh, it's, it's extremes right. on both end instead of the reality of like, no, this is happening to to men and women. And what can we do to solve these problems? I'm a big advocate in the victim services field. And it it's a lot of the trainings. Um, they, they are, they are very focused on, on, on women. And, you know, the whole narrative needs to change on how can we just support and, and really, <laughs> again, it takes the focus off of the predators and makes us fight with each other as to who's lying, who's not, well, that didn't really happen to you, or that didn't really, instead of no, like there are predators out there and how can we identify and prevent and, and do better to support all victims. Well, and I've got two things to say about that. First off, how many times have we seen a, uh, a school teacher somewhere, a high school algebra teacher who seduced and had sex with one of her students and and news outlets frankly talk about it like this young teacher uh had sex with had intercourse had sexual relations with a young man who happened to be 16 years old like no that's rape like first off stop talking about like about it like that we have to again to get away from this binary or to get away from this false dichotomy that exists we have to call it by what it is and first off it's rape uh, but secondly, um, and, oh, and and along with that, uh, every single time that an, that an article like that comes out, you look at the comments on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and there's countless men. Like literally, you cannot count the men, the grown ass men, who are saying, "I wish my teacher would have done that when I was 16." Like, really? Are you kidding? Like, this is this is disgusting. A, what you're saying, B, what happened. Um, and then secondly, I don't know if y'all remember, it came out last year uh, on Netflix, that movie Cuties. It was about, I never watched it, but um, if anybody, who, for whoever's listening, as I understand it, and somebody please correct me, it's about a a group of girls, uh, pubescent, prepubescent girls who are on a dance team and the story focuses on one of them who is essentially uh, uh, coming of age, mm-hmm. so to speak. She's going through puberty. She's exploring her sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the the untold droves of people who came out against this movie said that they were canceling their Netflix su- subscriptions, said that this is disgusting and this is why we have, and they would spout off conspiracy theories, right? And I challenged... Uh, a lot of people on on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter 
saying, if you really care so much about protecting children, why don't you start with Uncle Joe or Uncle Bob or that creepy uncle that you have Mm -hmm. that you tell your daughter, hey, don't go sit on his lap. Yeah. You tell your you tell your sister, hey, go hide in your room because he's coming over for Thanksgiving and you know how he is. And I said that to multiple people and and just as general posts. And I got so much pushback from people saying, well, that's different than this movie because this movie puts it out in our faces in front of us and tells us exactly what it is. And it takes away this false dichotomy of rape or not rape. And I can feel good about denouncing a movie. And I don't have yeah. to fight with uncle, whoever, whatever his name is, or mom or dad or whoever else in the family over somebody who is actually causing harm. And again, we see that in the church where we would rather tell women and men, but unfortunately, more often, Darren, like you pointed out, it's women. We would rather tell you, well, it's in your mind, it's your imagination. He didn't mean it that way. You took it the wrong way. Or if if it's something just as simple as, hey, I would like to get up and, and say a word in front of the youth group, in front of the church, in front of whatever, people go back to, well, the Bible says, and frankly, no, the Bible doesn't say what you think it says. The Bible says rape is bad, one. <laughs> and two, the Bible says that You should, instead of telling girls, because we've talked about modesty tonight, instead of telling girls, hey, watch what you wear around boys, Jesus says, hey, boys, cut your hand off. (laughs) Hello. That's in the word. Cut your tongue off. Cut your dick off. And and I'm being I'm being crude here, but it's true. The Bible does not say anything, a single thing about how women are supposed to protect men's lust. The Bible does not say a single thing about how women are going to destroy men if they stand up and preach or stand up and pastor or stand up and pray. The Bible says plenty about men who need to man up. And this is the one time, this is one of the few instances where I use that term. (laughs) Men need to man up and either take a stand or sit down and shut up. Yeah, I I want to add one one little uh, after note to the story about cuties. Part of why it got such uh, such a tense and an intense um, reaction in the U.S. is that Netflix created this cover and this mm-hmm. um, promo material for the movie that had this very highly sexualized posing. These very revealing, if you will, uh, costuming, this very grown-up kind of makeup. But the movie actually isn't that. The original, the the original uh, director is a, is a woman who is a black woman. Um, didn't create that, but because Netflix wanted to market this in the uh, in the sensational way, it chose to. They really sideline this beautiful, thoughtful, woman-led project Mm -hmm. because they appealed to American men and their hyper-sexualized view of young girls. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, it's one of those choices where, you know, there was there were multiple men involved in creating that and portraying it that way and, and green lighting that. And it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, we have to change the way so much works um, because this is this this is this too is systemic. This too is about more than some bad person was sitting there with Photoshop. There were multiple people and multiple checks and balances involved that said we are more mm-hmm. concerned about making money and making this look enticing or controversial right. than they were about actually saying what the movie was about, which is the movie is the critique of that culture. It's mm-hmm. not a it's not a, 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 a it's not a um, pedophile's daydream. No, it's like, no, this is what's wrong. And they challenge those ideals yeah. in the movie but you won't see that because you heard the you heard about the cover that Netflix right. created and many people didn't even attempt to watch it because of right. that and just judged it without even watching it so yeah. I watched it I thought it was very well done and I think it was very representative of the culture around even the dance culture movement because with young girls if you if you have young girl that's in dance or have friends that their girls are in dance. If you've ever seen pictures or the videos of them, you, you see that culture. And so, you know, that young girl that they portray, she's just trying out these different, you know, things that she's seen in magazines. You know, if we want to talk about modesty, you know, don't be looking at Cosmopolitan or, you know, Elle or Vogue or whatever, because you're not going to find find it there. But yet women who are so against it are also looking at those magazines, too, yeah. in their spare time. You know, it's there's such a, I don't know, a mix of our culture that, I don't know, it's very... It's interesting how it shows up in parenting because I remember watching or listening to a podcast um, and it was a parenting podcast and the guy had his wife on. And so they were talking about mothers of sons. And one of the things that they talked about was that mothers need to watch what they wear and how they are, you know, like being at the beach and wearing a bikini so that you're raising your son to see you as modest so that your son doesn't. So it gets deep in that. Now my responsibility is not only to all the men out there, but now I have to, you know, have the responsibility of making sure that my sons aren't lusting after other women and that they're looking, they, by my example, they know what a modest woman is. Um, But at that time, I remember it fit with like, what I grew up believing in, in that, you know, I am to be modest and that I, um, you know, have this image to per- portray as a Christian woman. But now, you know, as I'm in a whole different phase of my life with, as the mother of sons, I'm very, um, careful with the stereotypes that I, that I, I myself subconsciously put onto them. Um, you know, that they can't cry or that they, um, you know, we talk, we talk about colors a lot, you know, my children are younger and that, you know, well, that's a girl color. And I'm like, there's no such thing as girl and boy colors. There's no such thing as girl and boy toys. Um, and so really exploring that. But I remember there was a point in my time where my son wanted to watch 
or he wanted this game and it was like this Barbie dream house game. And it was like, you know, they're cooking, they were doing yes. all this stuff. Um, and like the, the one part of me was like, yeah, like this is cool. But then like, I got so anxious and I had to sit with that of like, wow, like how conditioned I've been to, you know, boys can't do anything related to Barbies. And he loves the game. He cooks with it and he loves to cook. <laughs> and I'm like, so you, so actually what I'm doing is raising a, a, a son that loves to cook. <laughs> right. Sure. And that is going to cook for his partner, whoever that may be, you know, mm-hmm. um, if he so chooses. <laughs> and I, I just... It really, as a parent, has me evaluate and be so careful. But then the other piece, too, is the being a single mom is that, you know, being a single mom and raising my sons without a consistent father presence. And so that is also scary because single mothers are also the brunt of some neg- negativity in terms of raising sons. Um, and so it's it's just all these different things that I'm, you know, for me at this point in my life that I'm wrestling with as I'm like deprogramming a lot of what I felt like were these stereotypes that I'm breaking out of, um, but also just being very mindful with, when it comes to my sons. I want to I wanna go back before we move on. I want to go back for just half a moment. Uh, to this podcast that you said that you that you watched, I've got three boys. The oldest is five. The youngest is two. Um, and something that we are teaching them, and I might have mentioned this at the beginning before we were recording, we are teaching them a handful of things when it comes to body autonomy. And I think that it's important for every parent to to listen to with every single kid. Doesn't matter if if you have a boy, a girl, or anything in between. There's two things that they need to learn first and most importantly is consent. They need to get consent explicitly from anybody that they touch. That includes, and this is the way we're teaching it, that includes their mom and dad. So we tell our boys, uh, our five-year-old especially, I think we think his love language is is, uh, physical touch. And so he will just run up to us, he will hug us, he will jump on us, he will kiss us, everything. And there's just sometimes, you know, like you've had kids crawling on you all day long. You just don't want to be touched. You feel icky, you feel whatever. And so something that we've had to work with him and also our other two boys on, because all three are this way, they're all very touchy-feely, is, hey, before you jump onto us, you have to ask if, if uh, you can hug us. You have to ask if we can pick you up. You have to ask if you can give us a kiss because sometimes we just don't. And it's not that we don't love you. It's just that sometimes you don't have consent. And so first off, as a, as a dad to other parents out there, that is that is one of the most important things you can teach your kid. But secondly, um, and Sarah, you specifically mentioned modesty in this in this podcast you were listening to. And I get that. Uh, I, I resonated with that. Um, like I can think back to specific times in my life where I resonated with that. And I would think, yeah, I don't want my kid to, to see girls in, in bikinis at the beach. I don't want my kid to see, to see women as objects and my children seen or not seen as the case may be anybody as an object to be had, to be possessed mm-hmm. is not on the way that that person dresses. It is completely on me. It is completely on the way I teach them. And so if 
I can't remember it, it earlier today. Um, I was in the other room and I think they were watching something on on TV or maybe it was on a, a video that my wife was watching on her phone. Um, our five-year-old saw a saw a video as, uh, again, I was in the other room, so I'm trying to like convey what I heard <laughs> from a room away. Our five-year-old saw in this video on my wife's phone uh, a woman who was looking at a poster of a guy, of a shirtless guy. And he, as a five-year-old, took issue with that. He said, hey, that guy's naked. She shouldn't be looking at him. And again, he just had his shirt off, right? Like, please, nobody, we're not showing our children naked pictures of anybody. <laughs> but, hey, that guy has his shirt off. She shouldn't be looking at that. And my wife, I love what she told him. She said, well, kid, kiddo, bud, that man consented to being seen this way, first off. And secondly, this woman consented to seeing him that way. And that right there is so mm -hmm. important. It's it, Again, it goes back to consent. It's not what I'm wearing or what you're wearing. It's do you want to see this? Do I care if you see me in this? Um, somebody mentioned here in the chat, kids should not be forced to hug or kiss family members. Absolutely. Amen. Hallelujah. Preach yep. it. And that's a hard thing in the Latino community, like in Latino families, like because you oh greet everybody, you're expected to kiss everybody. And that was always something I struggled with. But I'm very big. Like I, you know, I don't I tell my kids, I affirm them like, it's OK if you don't want to talk right now. Like sometimes mm -hmm. mommy doesn't feel like talking yeah. like it's, yeah. you know, I body autonomy is so important um, for me as a parent, as someone who has been violated. Like I I when I am talking to my children, when I'm interacting with my children, even when I'm bathing them at their age, I'm like, um, you know, they're old enough to bathe themselves. But if I need to, or if, if, they, if I need help, I'm always, you know, I'm asking them for permission to touch their body, um, explaining to them, you know, the the difference um, between consent and not consent. And they get it. You know, we, we, we make it so complicated, but these kids get right. it. They understand you know, there's been times that, you know, quickly, again, as a mom, if your child has a boo-boo or something and you're just, you know, going ahead and just touching your child. And I got, I got called out by my kids. I'm, you didn't ask permission to touch. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. Go ahead and call me out. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's important to teach them at that point and to, and to be that model as a parent, um, for, for that, because yeah, don't be forcing these kids to, to, touch or do or do all that it's yeah. not disrespectful it's not disrespectful behavior we need to stop that it is them taking ownership of their body and they have every right to do that as yep. a human being that's right and I, I think the part that we get hung up on um is well what if what if they have an issue with it right so what if i tell them no and they push back on me what if i say i don't want this and they push back on me um God forbid, I saw I saw an article earlier this week uh, that was talking about how a pastor had relations with a member of the church who later came back and said, I didn't really want to. I just felt I had to because they were my pastor. And and unfortunately, because of the culture that we've created, we we come out and we feel like if I say no, 
that's going to be great offense to them. And so I can I can deal with with pretending that it's a yes more mm. than I can deal with telling them we need to change that. We need to not only, Sarah, like you said, and and I know you do this, but not only saying, asking for that consent to, hey, can I help bathe you? Can I help do whatever? Because they are still people. Mm-hmm. They are standing there naked, needing mm-hmm. help. Yep. Honestly, at the end of needing help, but also giving them the affirmation that they can also say yeah. no. And we tell our five-year-old that all the time, and he says no regularly. <laughs> all right, well, hey, these are the things that you need to watch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the things that you need to do because otherwise you're going to come back out you're still going to stink <laughs> and like that's that's all on you but we need to give them the autonomy and the permission to say no and the way we do that is again by being by just being okay with that answer by yeah. just saying okay you don't want it that's fine i'm not going to throw a fit i'm going to be an adult yeah. um, again mm-hmm. i'm going to man up and accept this decision. Right. And I, if that's the way that we want to talk about. I love that that's that your uh that your wife also removes shame from mm-hmm. other people's decisions mm-hmm. in that yeah. moment. Because that's part of how we how we how we've been socialized to to control people by introducing shame into other people's choices or whether it's their clothes or you know, that it somehow says something about them. It's like, no, people people can choose to do things. That may be something that you don't choose or that you don't want, but it's fine for people to make choices according to what's right for them or what's appropriate for them. Because there are things that aren't appropriate for kids to choose, and mm-hmm. it's okay to say that without it being you're bad because you choose these things or because you're curious about these things or because you desire these, these things. It's like, no, this is appropriate for a later time or this is appropriate... Um, when you're, you know, when you have more information, yep. not again, not associating curiosity and choices with goodness and badness, but instead making it clear. Um, but I don't want to lose this other point that you were making about um, about church leadership and so forth. And I, I just, you know, umbrella that term that into power dynamics in choices and consent mm-hmm. and so forth. Like we have to know that as parents. We have some power <laughs> mm-hmm. that can that can be overwhelming if we have if we if we aren't accounting for it. Yeah. Or as church leaders, we have power that can be overwhelming if we're not aware of our position. Yep. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things where we say, "Oh, but that person, uh, like my again, my my former church that was abusive, they tell you all day long, nobody held a gun to your head." But if your power over me is that you are my connection to God, that you are the person who's providing me a place to live, that you are my income source, that, you know, all of my here and eternity is tied up in pleasing you. I don't know that I really have consent, (laughs) that I have the ability to give consent, I should say, or the agency to give consent when you have so much of my autonomy tied up in your hands. And so that's the other thing we have to really be mindful of and we can't simply just give away all the power we have it doesn't just go away because we don't want it but when we are in a in a one-up position we have to account for that in how we make space for people to choose exactly and i think the other way we have to be 
extra careful with not just what we ask of people as leadership in our leadership positions, but also the way that they respond. Uh, Something I tell every single person that I ask to volunteer, it doesn't matter at what level, doesn't matter what I'm asking them to do. I always say, what I'm going to ask you, I want you to take at least 24 hours to think about. I don't want you to give me an answer right now. I don't want to hear an answer right now. Can I get that? Are you okay with not giving me an answer right now? And people always look at me weird. They're like, what? What What? what are you going to ask me that's so important? And I'm like, can you bring coffee tomorrow? <laughs> um, it, but it's so important that we as leaders, and again, whether we're in the church, whether we're in the business world, where, whether we're, we're wherever we're at, we are a leader somewhere. And we have to recognize that in those roles, we hold a certain position of power where consent has to be taken with a grain of salt. And more so, I think when we're talking about leadership in the church specifically, when it comes to men versus anybody else, men versus uh, uh, women, or again, or transgender or intersex or anything else, we have to be extra careful that the consent that we're give that we're getting is true consent that we're not forcing anybody in any way, that we're not shaming anybody in any way to give us what we want. Because at the end of the day, uh, consent that is, oh, dang, I, for, I forget the quote, but it's like consent that is not freely, freely given is not consent at all. Mm-hmm. We, have to, we have to come to terms with that. We have to, to recognize that and work up, I think, from from that point, from that position of, hey, I'm in a position of power. And like we were talking at the very beginning, I can either, uh, before we started recording, I can use this privilege, is what it is, to amplify and defend other voices, or I can use this privilege to, uh, to bring me more power, to bring me more accolades, to bring me more of what I want no matter the cost. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we, we, we very freely f- share our own values and opinions, and uh, we've already talked a lot about egalitarian kind of things or, um, or genders being equal. Um, I'm wondering if there are insights that we have from places and cultures that maybe don't necessarily um, practice or lean into egalitarian values because it's not it's not that having gendered differences are inherently bad but we're I think we're doing a, a deep dive on some of the problems that we personally experience that come out of these gendered kind of things um, but I'm also thinking about the places where in my life and, and where I've seen where there are some very gendered kind of things. And for the people that it works for, it works well for, um, for example, I know sometimes we, we look at our um, Muslim or Islamic uh, siblings and how women have very, actually women and men both do have some very specific um, mm-hmm. ideas around what they wear. Um, but 
you know, going back to this idea of consent, if you are in a place where you're free, like I know American women who choose to wear a burqa, if you're in a, in a space where you're free to do that and it's not dangled in front of you like a carrot, that can be really empowering for them to live into those values and to, to live into mm-hmm. that. Um, or my mom, she was the first feminist I knew and she is not going to be out in these streets with her shoulders out. Like that is just not something that is empowering to her. But the fact that she raised me to fight for people to be able to make their own choices rather than be dictated to or have policy written about them. Um, let me see kind of the ways that she's she's empowered to make her own, her own choice. So it's not whether or not she wears long skirts or not. It is she's empowered to have that decision in her life. Um, so I'm wondering, do any other examples or, or things come to mind where where you see there are some very strong gender things, but people can do what works for them. I feel like I've I've kind of gone from, I don't want to say necessarily one extreme to to the other, but being very told again how I'm supposed to be as a woman and then went through a phase where I kind of rejected a lot of things. Um anything that was um very stereotypical or a gender role for a female, I just you know, I was very like didn't didn't want to any part. And I remember one of the things was cooking. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, as a Puerto Rican woman, cooking is something that is very, you know, near and dear and um, something that all the women do. And my grandmother, the matriarch of our family who since passed, but she loved to cook. She was in the kitchen. She, it was her art. She was great at it. And she raised me very early on taught me how to cook and all of her grandchildren. And there was like a joke that I was like one of the only grandchildren that didn't like to cook (laughs) and like rejected it. Like as she was living, like just like all the things of like, I'm not going to be, I don't want to cook for my husband. And, you know, not that I didn't cook for my husband, but uh, when I was married, I did, but rejected that that was supposed to be my role and that that was expected of me. Um, But now as I, you know, especially um, when she passed and as I was um, understanding why Puerto Rican women, and I think I'm just speaking specifically for my culture, but why our recipes are so important and why, you know, just down to where the food comes from, um, you know, where, how it came to be, how these recipes came to be, the stories behind them. When I started really learning all that, um, and really understanding like the joy and seeing the joy that my grandmother had when cooking, I fell in love with it. And now like, I, I love cooking. Like I am, you know, I'm a woman, I want to be in the kitchen. Um, and that's, that's just something that I now fully embrace as being just, you know, I don't want to say my right in the kitchen, but you know, being, being that to, to go from where I was to now be a woman that loves to be in the kitchen cooking is it's empowering in a way um, because I think I'm taking back some stereotypes that I rejected and taking back things as I am kind of changing my identity as a woman and just being proud of, you know, the feminine energy or people call it and, and just um, being able to define for myself how I want my life to look as a female, the things that I want to embrace. And so that was one of the first things that for me, it was like, wow, like, 
I, I love cooking. I want to cook for people. I want to have people over. So. Stacey, how about you? Any, any moments of self-discovery? I think for me, it's allowing myself to be comfortable in my own skin. And I'm not yet because my body has changed so much in the last like 25 years um, that I still look in the mirror sometimes and I'm like, who the hell is this person? Like, I don't look like me. You know what I, I, it's such a weird thing, but I'm like, this is not what I should look like on the exterior. The shape of me is not correct. But I look at other women and I see like other women encouraging them, others online, um, bodies of all shapes and sizes and colors. And, and I'm like, oh my God, they're beautiful. Like gorgeous like and I had to get over me (laughs) right exactly and I'm like I go into Target to try a swimsuit on and I'm like oh yeah no this is not pretty but I look at Lizzo in a freaking whatever it is that she's wearing on a video and I'm like go like she's freaking amazing and I'm like she looks freaking gorgeous and I'm like okay I so the whole like in my skin thing still the whole like womanly body thing is not it's I don't know it's really hard for me to um be comfortable still with my own self um and as far as like the gender stereotypes I I think that's one of those things is like we're hard on ourselves like more than other people and well there are times like I'll judge somebody for wearing something like why did you wear that you know like especially my kids like god love them but like their sense of style is ridiculous sometimes so oh lord (laughs) (laughs) but I I will say I'm coming to a place of acknowledging um the whole uh not just female or male um genders and the stereotypes that go along with them i i can't go into it too much but like um just for privacy sake um but when we talk about gender norms and uh gender fluidity and so forth there's that whole like Okay, stereotypically, you know, um, there's female traits and then stereotypically there's male traits. And and so I'm coming to terms with that, with the particular person that I'm seeing and needing to accept that sort of thing. And it's it's been eye-opening for me. So I don't know if any of that made sense, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate appreciate the transparency because sometimes mm-hmm. you'll listen to a podcast and you think, oh, they got it all together. But there is a lot of grace for the fact that we're all on a journey and Lizzo is speaking power into my life. And I follow her on TikTok mm-hmm. for that very reason. <laughs> um, but I also I'm, I'm resonating with uh, with different parts of these intersections. Right. The parts where yeah. um, as a kid growing up. I 
didn't know how to walk right, um, air quotes. I didn't know mm. how my arms were supposed to swing, so I didn't, quote unquote, look gay. And so I would not swing my arms at all for a season of my pubescent years until my cousin was like, why are you walking that way? <laughs> and I confessed. It was like, Cause I don't know how. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he taught me how to walk. Um, and I think I've mentioned maybe some parts of this before on the podcast of the parts of me that felt very unsure. Um I basically learned how to present in a way that um, projected confidence. So my cousin taught mm. me to walk. And then in high school, I, I, was, uh, I was in a fashion show. And so one of, the, one of the senior boys who, yeah, people probably would have, like, people made jokes about and made rumors about if he was gay or not. But he knew how to runway walk for men, and he taught mm-hmm. he actually taught the men and the women how to how to walk, you know, runway. And he taught me this very confident runway walk and like the mechanics of it to the point now I do it without thinking. And so in my most insecure moments when I'm on stage or performing or something, people are like, oh my gosh, you were up there so, so confident. And I was like, I was nervous. Why isn't anyone comforting me? Because I've learned this certain kind of performance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the last piece of just the little everyday things, um, I didn't grow up super traditionally masculine. I was an artist. I was creative. I was a lot of things that we might call stereotypically gay, but I I didn't get teased about that until high school when everybody got teased about being gay because that was just a default tease. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, but it also, because I because I never felt like I fit, fit in with other guys, um, it made, you know, it kind of heightened my sensitivity to what are guys supposed to do and what are guys supposed to be into. And so um, I remember... Sometime in 2020, <laughs> I've had many of these moments, but I, 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 uh, I installed my flat screen TV on the wall. So I had to like drill in the wall and, and do all these quote unquote, traditionally mask things. And, and I remember getting online and talking to my friends. I was like, I was, I was super butch today, y'all. I, <laughs> I installed a TV on my wall. <laughs> And it's like this moment of huge accomplishment. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, but but again, because we we have all these kind of predetermined expectations um, of how we're supposed to be a man or how we're supposed to be a woman, mm-hmm. or just what our humanness is supposed to look like according to gender. And the reality is we are, I think all of us are struggling to just fit in, to be accepted in some mm-hmm. kind of way. And because we don't talk about that, it gets hidden behind demands and expectations. But sometimes sometimes parents will even push gender norms on their kids because they don't want them to face teasing. Um, But Mm -hmm. maybe we should fight the norm rather than the kid. Yeah, there it is. Absolutely. And just to close this out, um, for me, I think the... The moment where I realized I had any sort of uh, privilege over gender or in gender, I'm not really sure how to say that. Uh, I was in high school 
And one Sunday morning, I would always dress up just a little bit for Sunday morning. It'd be like jeans and a button button up shirt, right? That was my dressing up. Um, and I remember one Sunday morning, I showed up in a like a bright pink shirt, like bright, bright pink. And I walk into, we would have our, like I said, I was about 16, maybe 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there. And I just, I've always loved the the color pink. I think I look good uh, in pink shirts. And so, and I've thought that for a very long time. And I showed up one Sunday morning to our, our student area, uh, just where we had kind of our, our Sunday school and everything. And immediately I'm like, like, I mean, I walk up the stairs and there's a little kitchen right there. And immediately I start getting teased by other guys. Um, and I just kind of ignore them. I blow them off. and. I again, I walk further into the student area and everybody's teasing me. Every single guy that I see is going, oh, Kevin, again, making those jokes, Darren, like you said, um, about just about gender and normativity. And I turned to them and I said, well, guys, you know what they say about guys in pink shirts, right? And they all looked at me like, they were stupid because honestly, we all were. We were 16-year-old boys. But they all looked at me and said, what? And I said, well, real men wear pink. And I just walked away like I was the hottest thing to have ever stepped foot. And great yes. <laughs> and it wasn't that it wasn't that Sunday, but it was the following Sunday that I came back and I had forgotten about the incident, honestly. <laughs> but the following Sunday, I came back. And I kid you not, every single male in the youth group was wearing a bright pink button-up shirt. <laughs> they all heard that real men wear pink. Okay, Kevin, I see you influential. You, I've been a three. <laughs> and four has always been me. Um, but it was that moment I looked around and I realized... They're doing this because uh, I did this last week. They're doing this because I had some sort of effect. And I, I tested it out in a couple of different ways over the next few months. But that was, I think, the first real moment that I realized I have a certain sort of privilege and influence in this space. Unfortunately, it was many, many years later, uh, almost 10 years later, until I realized that, hey, I need to use this. Uh, this privilege and this influence to amplify uh, marginalized voices in the gender space. But that was the first moment that I realized it. And I always think back to that, uh, to think that, hey, I, I need to do more of this. We all need to do more of this. We need to make this normal. Gender norms today were not the gender norms 50 years ago or 100 years ago, or a 1,000 years ago. They're always changing. They're always going to be different. They're different for this generation of, of Gen Z and Gen Alpha than they were for millennials and Gen X and boomers. And they're going to be different in the next generation and the next and the next. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is. Um, and if, if we can realize that, and if we can turn that for good if we can turn that to amplify other voices i think we'll have a better and better society at every single step of the way it's when we give up on that it's when we want to say hey i'm going to hold on to my 
I'm going to say it, traditional conservative values of how the world used to be in some imagined version of the world, that we get stuck, that we get in a rut. And so hopefully we can take these conversations, the conversations that we have here, uh, the com- this conversation that hopefully people are listening to, and carry it out to other spaces, carry it out to our churches, carry it out to our ministries, carry it out just to our families, where we can say, we can tell them, hey, you don't have to be the way society tells you that you have to be, whatever that is, at whatever stage in the game we are. And it's okay to question the norms, the gender norms, and to be different and to like different things. Mm-hmm. It is okay. It is, we are all unique and you don't have to subscribe to any type of gender norm or stereotype that society or someone or family puts on you. Be authentic, yeah. be you. Right. But you should follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else pod- find podcasts. <laughs> subscribe there. <laughs> subscribe there. Rate us five stars. Share us with your friends. Hit like and subscribe. Right. Yeah. I, I appreciate everybody sharing. Um, it's it's one of those things that that I think affects all of us in different ways. And we really do build empathy and build care for, for one another when we listen, you know, when we spend some time just being open about the stuff that that's happened, the stuff that we're working on and the stuff that uh, we haven't figured out yet. So I'm looking forward to the rest of the series because we definitely have some deep stuff to get into. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. Uh, like I said before, please make sure to hit follow or subscribe, whatever your preferred podcast host uh, has. Be sure to rate us five stars. Um, and also share us with your friends. Like that is that is honestly the biggest compliment that you could give us is rating us five stars, sharing us, sharing us with your friends, um, leaving a note in the show comments, sending us an email, what have you. All of our contact information is down the, in the show notes. So be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and also to um, to send us an email. We we want to receive some some love mail, some compliments, some comments. If you have any questions, be sure to send us an email. And uh, yeah, join in us next week as we continue this conversation.